This podcast is brought to you by Future Women. Become a member to gain full access to our exclusive content and packed calendar of online events. Every week we bring you amazing guests, expert advice, and you get to ask the questions. You can also upskill with our online learning program to build resilience and better define your personal brand. It's never been more important to connect, learn, and lead. Join the movement today by going to futurewomen.com. There's an option to suit every budget. Hello, I'm Brooke Boney, your host for season three of Next Generation Innovators, a podcast where we tap into the stories behind some of Australia's most successful entrepreneurs and how they've scaled their ideas into global businesses. So whether you're in business, you own one, or you dream of doing it yourself, these conversations will guide you through the ups and downs of startups, from ideation and development to investment and scale. Jodie Fox was co-founder and creative director of Shoes of Prey, a company that allowed people to design their dream shoes online, get them expertly manufactured and have them shipped to anywhere in the world within two weeks. The startup broke even at two months, raised over 27 million US dollars in funding and shipped to more than 100 countries around the world before ceasing trade in August 2018. While runaway success stories are inspiring, it is failure that we can learn from the most. So yeah, in the, in those moments, there was I was very much living in my lizard brain uh, in the fight or flight mode, and discovered confidently many times over that I am fight, not flight. Um, and when you're living in that brain, it's funny. Like there's kind of this very clear survival that dominates everything that you do, and it strips back everything peripheral about who you are and what you've thought about the world and the way that it operates. Jodie's new book, Reboot, probably more than you ever wanted to know about starting a global business, hit shelves late last year. And it gives an honest and raw account of the Shoes of Prey journey, sharing a multitude of learnings along the way. Future Women's Next Generation Innovators podcast is brought to you by The Outnet, the ultimate fashion destination where you'll find over 350 designer brands at up to 70% off. The Outnet is the place to go when you're looking to build your wardrobe with designer pieces at exceptional prices. So whether you're dreaming of Zimmerman dresses, a Stella McCartney suit, or coveting everything from Valentino, it's all there. And right now, The Outnet are offering our listeners 20% off their next clothing purchase. Just enter the code FUTUREWOMEN20 at the shopping bag. Terms and conditions apply. Visit theoutnet.com forward slash futurewomen for more details. Thank you so much for joining us. I guess um, we should begin where every startup begins. The idea. How did the um, how did the idea come about for Shoes of Prey? Do you know Shoes of Prey was really a very organic process. So I had found somewhere uh, in Hong Kong where I could design my own shoes. I'd heard about it for quite a while, and like when you get the opportunity to travel overseas to Europe, um, most Australians need to take a stopover somewhere because we're far away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I took my stopover in Hong Kong, raced out to this little store and had the most fun experience ever, uh, picking all of these colours and shapes and mm. that sort of thing to design shoes. Um, Ten weeks later, the shoes turned up in Sydney and I just started wearing them and my girlfriends were asking where they came from. And when I explained, they asked me to create designs for them as well that they just couldn't find anywhere. Uh, and some of the reasons were 
they had feet that weren't considered to be a normal size or normal shape. And for others, it was just that, you know, block orange was trending and that's not really what they wear. <laughs> yeah. So made these shoes for them. Uh, side by side with that, my two co-founders, Mike and Michael. Um, so Mike had been at Google for a number of years and he had studied um, uh, IT uh, and law. Michael had studied uh, commerce and law and they had both gone to Google actually and were seeing that there was this shift that was happening where people were becoming more confident to purchase online. And they'd started to see their clients having success in these areas and so they were really keen to try something but they wanted an idea and an idea that would be a purple cow so they both read the book purple cow by seth godin and the basic concept is that if you were driving past a paddock and you saw a purple cow in it you would want to share that so it was creating something that was naturally shareable uh, and exciting and as we talked to any woman who would listen, mm. <laughs> our poor female friends, <laughs> were poked and prodded and asked questions by us so many times. Um, it was a unanimous, yes, I'd love to design my own shoes. Mm. So um, that sort of triggered the journey. But I have to say as well, you know, it wasn't, for some people uh, and some founders, they describe it like, and then lightning struck me and I just knew. And mm -hmm. I can't say that that was the case. What I can say is that it piqued my curiosity that, you know, it was something that, you know, we just started taking one bite, then another bite, then another bite out of. And, you know, then it, it formed into the idea. And so it just sort of kept growing and growing. And after launching in 2009, Shoes of Prey broke even after just two months. It had multi-million dollar revenues within two years and was receiving praise from all over the globe. How did it feel to get that sort of success? So I guess um, a couple of things. So one is my family background is not a wealthy background. In, in fact, it's um, one that every generation has tried to make a little better for the next. Um, I was a part of the first generation that got to go to university, which was really cool. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I feel I feel really lucky. Um, and so <laughs> those sort of um, values that were instilled, probably the key one was um, your any success that you build, whether it's financial or a business, um, gives you the freedom to choose. So it gives you the freedom to make your next move mm. and um, the freedom to choose about the lifestyle that you have or what you bring to the generation after you. And so the um, the fact that we could break even and create something like this out of a conversation on the beach and then working in the lounge room uh, to me was incredibly exciting. Um, on the praise side of things, um, I I never took it... I, it was it was more of a relief <laughs> rather than a yeah I am amazing <laughs> yeah and um, part of that is that I think I've never really um, thought about praise as something that sticks for the long term it can be very momentary mm. um, and really what we needed to prove was going to happen over a long period of time so it was a good affirmation in the beginning mm. um, and when that has come up on the journey it's been a welcome affirmation in amongst the craziness of and the challenges. That's such a, a thoughtful and um, like insightful way of thinking about praise and and thinking about like the the fleeting um, the fleeting nature of, of that sort of um, 
commentary around your own performance. Like, so instead of being like, oh, yes, I am amazing. Thank you for that. <laughs> you're like, oh, great. Like, I, I just feel sort of secure in, in the process that we're going through. You know, it's totally. I'm on the right track. Kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You've said um, the say- that the saying entrepreneurs live four years to everyone really resonates with <laughs> you. Um, I feel like television hosts age in dog years you know, because of the <laughs> so we're lack the of sleep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How did your um, day-to-day life look like? Um, what, what did your day-to-day life look like as a, as a co-founder and creative director? Sure. Um, it, look, it, it shifted a bit over the years um, depending what was happening in the business. Um, but the days were really long, generally speaking. So in the very beginning... Um, you know, I was taking my laptop into bed with me mm. and falling asleep with the laptop on me and then waking up and picking it up off the floor and just getting straight back into it again. Wow, that's my um, kind of office. <laughs> <laughs> Work from bed, I like that. Except, no, I, I once had this moment where I was working from bed in the morning and I'd just gotten so involved in what I was doing that um, I'd forgotten that I had a phone call and it was a, a Skype call. <gasps> yeah, and so it rang and I was like, oh, and I answered it. Um, and I'm sitting in like a Bond singlet. No bra. And no bra. <laughs> like hair, hair and like <laughs> up on the top of my head and not in the elegant, glamorous Kate no. Moss way, like yeah. in the, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm bed, literally. Like. <laughs> um, so I answered the call on audio and they and I was like just seeing if I'd get away with it. They're like, oh, we can't see you, Jody. And I was like, oh, that's really strange. Let me see if I can fix it. Just tap some random keys on the keyboard. <laughs> we still can't see you. Oh, look, let's not waste time on this. Let's keep going. <laughs> you know, so, um, so, you know, pros and cons. Uh, but, um, yeah, so that's what early days were like. And then um, getting into an office and then realising that from a cultural perspective that we really did want everyone to be in there around the same time so we could bounce ideas quickly so that we could um, be forming a sense of what what our identity was together on a day-to-day basis became important. So then going to an office was a new change to that routine and, um, and you know, office hours were, and being up there and deciding whether I worked better at home in the evening or at the office, you know, things like that were going on. Then travel became a really big part of my life mm. um, as we were um, seeing organic traction in all these other markets. Uh, we were, in the end, we were shipping to about 100 countries every single month, um, yeah, which was really extraordinary and um, amazing to witness. Um, and we had opened offices in other countries as well. Our factory was in China, so I was traveling a lot there. Mm. Um, and in 2015, in fact, I didn't even have a home address, a permanent address. I was literally living out of my suitcase the entire the year. So much. Yeah, so it, it became very apparent to me very quickly that <laughs> the suitcase was it. <laughs> How did you, did you like that or was it really hard? Because I, I feel like I'm the sort of person I need sort of roots down. Totally. In order to sort of do my best work, I need to know that I've got a home base that's pretty solid or a home life that's pretty solid. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Um, I think at the time, frankly, like I didn't give it a lot of thought. Mm. I, um, I tend to look at something and just figure out how to get it done. Yeah. Um, and I often... Uh, how to get it done, how to get it done well, mm. what's it going to take. Mm. And then I don't really think about the personal repercussions uh, until I'm close to the end <laughs> of that process, mm-hmm. which could be the same could be said for the book. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but so that year we were opening uh, five stores in 10 weeks with Nordstrom all around the United States. Mm-hmm. 
And so a lot of around, so that 10 weeks plus the pre and post prep for that Mm. was, you know, kind of roughly getting close to 20 weeks on the road with all of that. Um, And then after that, it just became obvious that, you know, I needed to be in New York for press. I needed to be in all of these places. And it just, you know, first I was going to just stay on the road till September and then it just expanded out. So at the end of that year, I did realize the value of and how much it, like you, really meant to me to be able to have a place that I could decompress, Mm. um, to not be in this constant situation of almost hunting for healthy food and how I was going to manage that. I actually carried a Nutribullet in my suitcase that whole year so that I could make healthy smoothies on the run yeah. <laughs> when I was in hotels. Do you know that's than... so funny because I've got a trip coming up where I'm going to be away for a month and I oh. thought, oh, I'm going to order a, a Nutribullet on Amazon yeah. and have it delivered to the place where I'm staying yes. so that I can make things. Anyway, side note, yep. for both obviously Hot very tip. big fans of smoothies. <laughs> For anyone listening, if you've got a good smoothie recipe, feel free to slide into our DMs. <laughs> now, Shoes of Prey raised an impressive $27 million US mm-hmm. in funding. What advice do you have for other founders who are seeking funding and what learnings can you share from that process? Because, you know, it sounds like, oh, my gosh, yeah. like an, a, an enormous amount of money. I'm sure there was a huge amount of work that went into that. Oh, of like, course. What was the the first step and how much did you think you were going to raise that much? No, so it happens. It does happen in, in parts. Um, and so my co-founder, Michael Fox, led our raising efforts. Um, so I'm going to give... And I was a part of it, but like he would have the more technical knowledge on that. So um, I will give you my sort of broader views on it, which are. I guess that's good advice in and of itself. Have someone who knows how to do that sort of stuff really well well, if you don't. None of us did, actually. So we we had a lot of very, very embarrassing pitches that, um, (laughs) you know, (laughs) you never care to repeat. They'll just come Um, back to you late at night, just right before you're about to fall asleep. You'll remember one of those awful pitches and all the blood will rush to your face. So um, I think the very first thing when it comes to raising funding is thinking about – what type of business that you want to build. And at a very, very general level, I would say, do you want to build a lifestyle business, Um, which is not looking to dominate a category, not looking to necessarily be global, like, but something that can, you can build and keep comfortable and maybe hand down to the next generation. And honestly, those businesses impress me. Um, Whenever I'm walking down the street and I see like a fruit shop or, you know, a chemist and I'm like, oh my God, this is, these are all entrepreneurs. (laughs) Mm. Um, And then the other type of business is I want to go mainstream. I want to dominate a category. I want to, I'm thinking globally. Mm-hmm. Um, because the reason it's so important to think about that at the beginning is that um, it will determine the type of funding that you get or that you go after mm-hmm. and the ty- and who you approach for it. Mm-hmm. So the type of funding I think we tend to hear about the most is um, investments from major institutions mm-hmm. um, and venture capital. So maybe there's another massive shoe brand that invests in shoes of prey, or maybe so those those strategic paths where you think, in the end, they might buy us, or you know they're trying to make sure they have a bite out of this part of the industry that's emerging. Um, and those are good long-term investments um, with the venture capital community. What you both take a bet on and have a firm belief in is that you've done your early testing and you're seeing unbelievable results 
that show that you can grow very quickly. And when I say that, I mean hundreds of percent year on year for multiple years <laughs> is, you know, what you can, you feel that you can extrapolate off the numbers that you're doing um, and that you can maintain that for a number of years. You've got the right team, you've got a good plan, you've got the machine that works to do it. And so you both kind of cast the die to take on that kind of money. Now, when you take on that kind of money, it means that in a business that's operating profitably, you hire someone when you have the money to. Um, you invest in bigger marketing budgets when you have the money to. When you pull on venture capital funding, you bring all of those costs forward. <laughs> mm. And so it's this, this intentional movement from being profitable to unprofitable um, with the idea that you push it to grow really fast and those sales come in and you sort of meet at a nexus where you are profitable and you've grown much more quickly than you would if you didn't have that money. Yeah. Um, and it can be really tricky because there's a a very large percentage of failure rate in that. But within the venture capital model, that's that's actually built in to what they um, have for the types of successes in their investments. So um, there requires a lot of thought around that. Then separately to that, <laughs> there are many other ways as well. You might have angel investors, friends and family. Um, you might go get a loan <laughs> as well. Uh, so I guess what I'm saying is, Think about the type of business that you want to build. Um, think about how big you think it can get um, or that you want it to get and the kind of life you want to lead around that business. Um, and then look at the different sources of capital um, and if it see which one you match with best and then go and raise that money. Um, because places like venture capital get talked about so much at the moment and hey look it is really sexy mm, yeah <laughs> um sometimes when I sit down with people it feels like it's the only source they're really thinking about but um even though it's sexy it might not be right for you and that's okay like there are plenty of types of businesses that we should all be extremely proud of that take different various types of paths to funding that's a pretty amazing um, way to think of it because I, I think that a lot of people at that stage where they're trying to grow or they're you know looking for some sort of positive affirmation that they're on the right track or whatever everyone thinks of venture capital you know and that, that this is the, definitely the only way to go this is how you're going to grow your business this is how you're going to be successful so it's interesting to hear your take that's like maybe that's not right for you go and check out a couple of different ways and totally and even within that as well um Different venture capital firms. So coming back to Australia after five years, it's just been so cool to see the kind of way that venture capital has developed. You know, we've got amazing leaders in the market like Blackbird, SquarePeg, Airtree, um, and the development is awesome. Um, the other thing, sort of if we go a layer down on that, is each venture capital firm has its own thesis <laughs> and things that they're investing in at that point in time. Um, so you kind of you need to do a bit of research to figure out not only at a broader level, is this right for me, but then who is right for me mm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. And because if you're right for them and they're right for you, that's sort of like a good match, then you're sort of much more likely to succeed, I guess. Yeah. I mean, and then and then as well, you know, they they have kind of a specific amount of money that they need to deploy that year as well. Mm. So then you need to see if you've not only made the match, but successfully enough for to be a part of that deployment. Mm. So the level of customization, which the brand was, you know, really renowned for, um, ultimately became a, a massive challenge, didn't yes. it? So at what point did you realise that this was a challenge and how did you try to address it and, and pivot? So I think that we always um, 
could always see the challenge of it. Um, and the issue was that the data that we had on the customers and the way that they were responding to it um, was really phenomenal. And we were getting great sales, great lifetime value, which means repeat purchase and things like that. Um, but what we didn't realize until much later in the business was that we were overperforming in a niche market rather than that being the mass market that wanted this to happen. Mm -hmm. So a couple of ways that we looked at it, we were constantly working on the user experience on the website to see if there are ways that we could shift um, to make that process much more simple, more intuitive, um, mm. and just sort of serving you more of what you were wanting as opposed to the heavy weight of design. Um, we started launching almost um, like our own collections as well. So people had a really firm starting point. Mm. Um, and the other thing that we did was we also had another great talent, which was um, the size range and shapes of shoes that we could do meant mm. that it didn't matter what size you were, you could get a great pair of shoes. So to put that in context, most shoe labels were doing Australian sizes five and a half to ten and a half or eleven, mm. not necessarily doing half sizes and certainly no width width adjustments. We were going from size two, two and a half to fifteen, including half sizes and four width adjustments. So wow. we sort of moved around to um you know, sort of helping people to find, because there was a study that was done that said roughly 70% of women, and they measured 20,000 women's feet and found 70% of those women were in the wrong size shoe. Wow. And it was, yeah, it was mostly because um, they weren't the standard size that the shoe, that the market was offering. Mm -hmm. um, and frequently it's things like, oh, the shoe doesn't fit me properly. I'll just go up a size. But actually what you need is a width adjustment. So um, we started to focus on that as well. Oh my gosh, that's mind blowing. That's seventy percent. It <laughs> it's, it's just absolutely astonishing. So you also, when you co-founded the business mm -hmm. with the two other people, one of them was your husband at the time, mm -hmm. and so you separated while you were still um, running the business. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine how difficult that would have been. Mm -hmm. How did you manage it? Like, what was your thought process? Because yeah. Know, your baby you don't want to you know oh my god and for both of us we were yeah. so passionate about the business I think that um there were a couple of things that were really important about the way that we separated um firstly we genuinely tried everything <laughs> to try and solve and see if the issues that we had as a couple were fundamental or if they were solvable and we both reached the conclusion that they were in fact fundamental um, it was early in the business. Um, so, you know, and, you know, we didn't have things like a house or children and things like that that can, or, you know, wild financial success that kind of make it, um, not to imply that we personally had wild financial success later because. <laughs> but now, of course, we're billionaires. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? No, be so nice. I would like that too. Uh, <laughs> maybe my next business. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> next husband, next business. <laughs> um, so, you know, I mean, but fundamentally, I mean, but sitting underneath all of that, because we had both come to that conclusion, because... Um, we had actually really worked through it together. Mm. There was no animosity. Mm. It just, you know, there was just a level of acceptance that, um, and it's not to say it wasn't challenging because it was, but it just meant that the separation itself and the divorce itself was n not tricky. Mm. Um, 
And then, you know, the challenges, the ways that I could sum them up are um, when you know someone that well, you don't listen to everything they're saying because you're reading between the lines. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, sometimes we'd be in meetings and, you know, something would really piss me off, like quite unreasonably, you know, so. But instead of just, you know, holding that in and being resentful and going home and swearing to my girlfriends about it, you know, which I did sometimes because you need to vent. Like that's just an emotional process. Mm. Um, And I am sure he would have as well. That's fine. Um, But literally like when those emotions came up, we'd be like, oh, can I just grab you for two minutes in the meeting room? (laughs) And we just talk it out and Mm. deal with it then and there. Um, Mm. So I think that communication was really key to being able to keep going. Um, We both cared a huge amount about the business. Um, Also, uh, you know, bouncing up off of that meant that we'd created this massive foundation of trust um, that we didn't break, which was great. Um, the tough thing about a separation like that is because it was due to fundamental, um, change, like fundamental challenges in our relationship, those fundamental things did play out, um, in the dynamic, our working dynamic. And, um, I guess one of the key ones is my natural disposition is to want to be a pleaser. (laughs) Um, And um, Michael's like sort of natural disposition is around being a manager. And so, you know, sort of I would take on all of these things and I wouldn't be able to get them all done. And then there was this mutual frustration with each other um, because, you know, it was too much stuff for any one person to get done. And on Mm. the other hand, I'd said I would do it. So, you know, sort of dynamics like that played out right through to the very end. Mm. In August 2018, Mm -hmm. you announced on social media that Shoes of Prey was um, ceasing operations. Mm -hmm. And so I imagine there was at least, you know, one tough year before that, but probably at least, you know, a few. By that point, your co-founders had left and you were Mm -hmm. chief executive. Can you take us through um, those years? Like how tough was it to fight to keep going? And when you reached that that critical point, that sort of breaking point, yeah. how did you know that you'd arrived there? Yeah, so, um, oh, God, it was such a, um, such a crazy process that, um, frankly, like I'm still recovering from now. <laughs> yeah, I can see that you're um, sort of visibly shaken by talking about it. It would have yeah. been traumatic. Like I don't, yeah. Yeah. Oh, totally. And I think part of writing the book was to capture it because chapters, particularly towards the end of the book where I'm in that situation, they're so visceral because I would go home. Um, so I, you know, like I was staying in a, um, a friend and colleague's apartment in uh, China and I was by myself and it was, you know, I was waking up at 4am for calls or taking calls at midnight. And when I couldn't switch my brain off, I was writing what was happening and how it was feeling. And um, that's why those chapters kind of are so visceral. But the reason that I did it was because I am so far from unique in this story. Um, there are so many people that have uh, trodden this road and it's not something that we talk about. But when when I was in those moments and I had the guts or the opportunity and the clarity in those few moments to 
get it out and say something about it or ask for help. Uh, the people who did share with me just gave me the most immeasurable feeling of, okay, one more step, I can make it. I'm not the first person to do this. I'm not the only person who stuffed things. <laughs> it's just that, just that sense of mm. some feeling of normal or being able to relate was really important. Yeah. Um, so yeah, in the, in those moments, there was, I was very much living in my lizard brain, uh, in the fight or flight mode and discovered confidently many times over that I am fight, not flight. <laughs> um, and when you're living in that brain, it's funny, like there's kind of this very, almost survive, very clear survival, um, that dominates everything that you do mm. and it strips back everything peripheral about who you are. Um, and what you've thought about the world and the way that it operates. Mm. And the only thing at the end of the day that will get you to a place of feeling like you're making the right decisions um, and that you can wake up and that you can is your values. Mm. Um, and so every day it was waking up, the emotion on waking up. And when you know in your brain you've got those few seconds in the morning that are just the most in my mind, the most precious moments of life where you wake up and there's stillness in your mind mm. and you, you know that you're safe and you know that it's okay and you know that, and then your brain goes, oh, let's go hunting for things. And then you realize, oh my God, I'm in this situation. That would hit and I'd get up and I'd, I'd put on the same song every morning, Florence and the Machine, um, Shake It Off, uh, not Shake It Off. Shake it out. Mm. <laughs> Just shake it off, Taylor. Yeah, <laughs> shake it out. Either. I feel like they'd both have that cathartic effect. <laughs> but no, this song by Florence and the Machine, it really um, kind of became this thing that somehow for me, and everyone needs to find their tricks and tools, but this for me would transfer that kind of fear energy into that fight mindset yeah. and be like, okay, well, what am I going to do about it? Um, but it really was that process every single day for quite a long time. Um, and then coming out of that, once the cessation of trade occurred, you know, there was still so much fighting to happen before we um, then entered the next stage, the next stage of that process of selling the company. Mm. And, um, you know, there's been still a lot to deal with. The process takes a long time. Mm. Um, and so now I'm learning how to not still live in my lizard brain <laughs> and yeah. to try and pull that back down a little bit so that I can um, experience life and appreciate personal life and, you know, exploring what I'm passionate about and want to do next in a way that is much more holistic. And it's weird when you get caught in that um, in that process where, you know, you're incredibly philosophical about things and, you know, you're building up your own resilience and, you you know, you're sort of living your values and constantly sort of judging what your values are. Then when things do become a bit easier and you're like, oh, no, I don't have to think like that all the time. I can actually just enjoy my life now. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a weird transition, isn't it? It's actually – it's super tricky and I find my brain – searching for ways to get back into that lizard brain and to be in that high intensity because it essentially lived there for 10 years. Mm. Um, and there's a, a lot of identity that attaches itself to that and says, mm. when I'm, when I'm this productive, when I'm this, um, that, you know, thinking this fast, um, that's when I'm doing my best work. That's yeah. when I'm my, being my best 
self, my best business person, my most effective, my most fulfilled. Um, and there is something to be said around that theory. It's used with high-performing athletes, for example, to use that to, you know, sort of stretch their capacity. And um, So what you're saying is basically we're athletes. <laughs> yeah. I can see it's just like winning gold medals, running a lot. And I'm, I'm saying that like totally in jest because I am a terrible runner. As am I. I mean, I'm I'm try I've tried it um, at the moment. My exercise regime is not great. Um, no, mine consists of a little bit of a stretch in the morning. Oh, that's moment. nice. Yeah, yeah, well, that's yeah. important. I do like a good stretch. <laughs> I, yeah, it's nice. It is nice. Yeah, but but yeah. So learning to come out of that lizard brain, learning yeah. to learning that life, you know, has that full spectrum, um, is a confronting identity moment. It's a confronting. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot a lot of facets, you know, uh, to understanding how you value yourself and what you think is mm. successful as yeah. well. So yeah, it's interesting. I just want to finish on um, um, the book because mm-hmm. you know it's not the normal sort of book that you would see entrepreneurs writing. Um, you know, normally they're like pumping up their own tires and like giving themselves <laughs> a pat on the back, but this one is like deeply rooted in you know opening up about failure. Mm-hmm. Was it? The process of writing the book did it sort of help you? Um, did it help you kind of process all of the emotions that you had around the journey that you went on with Shoes of Prey? Kind of. Um, the reason for writing the book was to share something unsaid that so many people had been through. Like I said, I'm so far from unique mm. in the experiences that I've had, um, and one of the coolest things has been um, people responding and sharing back with me their stories. Mm. Um, and this community just has been super cool. Um, some days, yeah, it was cathartic. Other days I've, I remarried uh, the most extraordinary man and he would come home and be like, Oh, so, you know, what did you write today? And I was like, you know what? I can't go through it again. (laughs) Read it in the book. You can read it. (laughs) You can pick up my computer and have a read, but I I just can't go through that again today. Yeah, not today, sweetheart. Yeah, so, you know, there was – and then actually, too, one of the other things was when the book – the day that it was going to the printers, I was – it dawned on me while I was in the shower, like all good ideas and moments of realisation, and I was – yelling out going why did I write a book this was a terrible idea (laughs) because I realized in that moment that um I'd written something very honest um and pretty personal and other people were going to read it yeah (laughs) um which was a really terrifying prospect and then seeing the book in other people's hands I remember um the day that it first came out and seeing someone reading it on the plane and I just I was just like, my blood was boiling up through my face and I just wanted to rip it out of their hands and say, just use it as a doorstop. Like, you know, it was don't really- <laughs> read it. Buy it, but don't read yeah, it. I didn't, well, yeah, because I, I was like, oh my God, you know, what are they thinking? What are they? It was just. Yeah, they this- know your innermost secrets and yeah. they're like a perfect stranger. Yeah. It must be such a weird experience. It really is. And I think that um, the cool, the, a couple of realizations off the back of that. So one is that the book is not the whole of who I am. That's mm. a, a facet and a yeah. point in time and, you know, so that's fine. Um, the other thing is the reason for doing it was the right reason. Um, and the third thing is, I think I said two, I'm going to cheat and have three, um, <laughs> is that um, it's not it's not my story anymore. It's everyone, it's all of our stories. Mm. Um, and that kind of makes me less 
vulnerable about it. Um, yeah, so it's definitely, yeah, it's it's definitely been a journey. It's um, honestly like been a, a tough one and I've learned a lot of new things. Um, but I feel extremely grateful um, to have had the opportunity to do those things. Uh, something that I always said during the business and um, used as like a tagline on my YouTube channel, which is just so embarrassing that I built a tagline on my YouTube channel. I mean, who am I? Um, was, you know, do things before you're ready. And I still will do everything before you're ready because the only time that you feel ready is once you've done it. So um, hand in hand with that comes this um, sometimes like shocks of um, confronting moments that just happen and bubble up and you have to figure out what to do with them. And uh, in writing the book, it happened during the writing. It happened in the release. Um, and, Do things before yeah. you're ready. I love that. Well, I'm you. gonna I'm gonna use that. Maybe that could be my <laughs> mantra for 2020. <laughs> Do things before you're ready. I yeah. love that. Oh, I'm glad. Well, all yours. <laughs> um, I think I, I really can't wait to read the book. And you know, if you're listening to this right now, like how lucky are we to have such a legend <laughs> speak to us on the podcast this week? Because it's so inspiring and resilient. And oh, I think, you. you know, as scary as it is for you to put that out there and see strangers reading it, like the benefit to so many of us will be that we are just all a little bit stronger for having read it. I really hope so. That's such a lovely thing to say. And I hope uh, if anyone who's listening has read it or does read it, um, DM me with your stories. Like, let's build this community together. It's as much for, you know, I, I feel so lucky when I get those sharebacks about other people's experiences mm. as well. So, And also I appreciate the hot tip on, um, you know, just pretending that you um, that you don't have the camera working on your <laughs> Skype call. You know, I'll also, that's also something I've yes. learned today. When, you know, when you've got your Bond singlet on, no bra and a messy bun, just mm-hmm. tap away on the keys and pretend Sorry. that you can't get it working. Technical issue. Yeah. Technical issue, it's not working. I'm trying my hardest. You'll just have to do with the voice. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me this week with the resilient Jodie Fox. Make sure you share this episode with friends who are in need of some inspiration. And while you're at it, leave us a review and tell us what you think. Thank you and see you next week. Future Women's Next Generation Innovators podcast is brought to you by The Outnet. The Outnet is where you'll find designer pieces for up to 70% off. Build your wardrobe with staples from Gunny and Sandro, as well as statement pieces from Diane von Furstenberg and Valentino. Right now, The Outnet are offering our listeners 20% off their next clothing purchase. Just enter the code FUTUREWOMEN20 at the shopping bag. Terms and conditions apply. Visit theoutnet.com forward slash futurewomen for more details.